0: This is Jordan Van Trump of Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey, everybody. Super excited today because I have the pleasure of having a conversation with David Perry. David has founded and built three innovative companies in the last 20 years, leading the last two through successful IPOs. He holds a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Tulsa, a master's degree from Harvard Business School. David also attended the United States Air Force Academy. Where he was a National Merit Scholar. In 2000, David was the Entrepreneur of the Year in North California by Ernest & Young. He also raised $1.2 billion throughout his career, and David is currently the President, CEO, and Director of Indigo. With that, I'd like to welcome David to the show. Thank you for having me, Jordan. I'm happy to be here. Yep, happy to have you on. Just letting everybody know, we had the pleasure of having David on stage at the van trump conference this past december he gave a great speech for indigo in my opinion we're uh all appreciative on our ends that indigo could sponsor the event what do you think about the conference well it's
1: fascinating it's um a conference where where the entire focus is about helping farmers improve their profitability and uh that's well aligned with what indigo is focused on
0: yeah i agree yeah we're trying to uh shift some turrets on our end and be more about building business in AG than anything else. Mm. But let's start this podcast off by you telling our listeners who has been the most influential person in your life. Um I would have to start with my dad. Um
1: you know I I grew up on a farm in South Arkansas and um you know we it was like most farms you know where we lived right where we worked we also had a little re- farm retail business and sold fertilizer to local farmers and um you know it was the 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 business the farm and our home life were indistinguishable when i was growing up so you know i learned firsthand i think two things one is work ethic you know i i can't recall ever getting up out of bed before he was and uh you know we rarely quit work before dark and two is the is the willingness or ability to to look at things differently I, I go so far as to say my dad had almost a, a disdain for uh conventional wisdom uh probably probably to such an extent that it wasn't always helpful but uh you know that that it's skill of stepping back and looking at things and saying just because they're done this way doesn't mean they have
0: to always be done this way has uh has been really valuable for me yeah i agree my dad's probably the most influential person in my life and he preaches to me every day just the concept of empathy he's like you got to be mm-hmm. able to step in someone else's shoes and see how they're looking at things and i think that's hard work too he preaches that all the time and he was up at yeah. four thirty today Right in the report. So, yeah, you got to tell me though. You you have raised in Arkansas. Are you a
1: Razorback fan? They they won't they won't let you stay in the state unless you're a Razorback fan. We <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm am willing to call the Hogs if you
0: think your listeners would be interesting. They might. They might be. <laughs> right,
1: we'll save that to the end.
0: <laughs> awesome. We'll do it at the end. So tell me a little bit about. Your background. You grew up. Uh, you just told us where you grew up. Tell us about high school, college, your first job, maybe some startups you started along the way. Yeah. So I was the uh, the oldest of three
1: children. I have two younger sisters, and um, you know, grew up in in the traditional family business, in that the entire family was was focused on the business. Uh, my my dad sort of ran it in theory but uh but my mom kept the books and did all the financial stuff and uh and the kids were free labor um i started driving a tractor at six years old i was making fertilizer deliveries by myself at the age of 12 you know it was uh it was a you know probably a pretty typical rural upbringing and then i went on to do other stuff i uh I went away to college, uh first to the Air Force Academy and then the University of Tulsa. I got a degree in chemical engineering. Uh I worked for a little bit and then went back to Harvard and got an MBA. And you know, and that was a life-changing experience. I uh I showed up at at Harvard probably woefully unprepared. You know, there were a bunch of people there who had been management consultants or investment bankers and i didn't really know anything about that stuff but it turns out i knew a bunch of other stuff that was pretty valuable and and i was you know i was at business school learned that stuff so the combination of sort of a you know a a scrappy rural upbringing with uh with a harvard mba has has been a pretty complete skill set and uh and i Came out of that wanting to be an entrepreneur so I I started a company called Kimdex uh, while I was still in business school and that was 1997 Kimdex was a one of the first business-to-business e-commerce companies um, you know I sc- scrapped to raise 1.9 million dollars in my first round in the fall of 97 as you might recall, that was the time that was the beginning of the internet bubble, and we took the company public in '99, when it was less than two years old at a billion-dollar valuation, and that company was was had a peak valuation of almost ten billion dollars in 2000. It was it was at the time the fastest company in history to go from zero to ten billion-dollar valuation. Uh, unfortunately, that was not a I didn't get to keep that record very long uh the when the internet bubble burst so did the stock price at Kimdex. and i spent you know the next year of my life doing really hard stuff you know laying off people getting you know, unwinding businesses uh buying back bonds etc and ended up selling kimdex for a few hundred million dollars
0: i then took What'd a that break you in the long and, run What's that? What all that in 2000, uh, laying people off and selling skim debts, what that teach you in the long run? You know, I, that was such a unique
1: time that, uh, that it's taken me a long time to figure out what the right lessons were. Uh, but I, I think the biggest one is I let strategy get ahead of execution. Um, you know, there were huge opportunities there, but the – the opportunity and the pursuit of that opportunity outran the organization I'd built and our ability to execute on it. And um, as a result of that, I spend a lot more time in the operations today than I did then. Yep. In fairness, I was 29 years old at the time, too.
0: So, uh, you know, I had a lot to learn. Yep. I get preached all the time. My dad's like, yeah, it's always a great plan until it comes time for execution. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> right he tells me that or, a lot I think,
1: I think mike tyson said it clearly like everybody got plan to get hit in the mouth
0: that's a good one he likes to say too he puts that report <laughs> from time to time to remember people to remind them <laughs> what the markets can do to you yeah so uh let's talk a little bit about everything you've started you've people have been calling you a serial entrepreneur you just talked about two of the companies you founded you founded a pharmaceutical company that was just acquired by Pfizer for $4.5 billion. You co-founded Better Therapeutics. I just really want to know what motivates you to start all these businesses, and how do you come up with all these successful ideas? Well,
1: um, you know, it comes back to the lesson I learned from my dad, I guess, or the the this, this skill that I learned from him, which is I naturally look at things and think, why don't we do them that way? And is there a better way? And, and that, you know, if you overuse that, it can drive people nuts, right? Like, <laughs> You know, you can hire experts and if you ask them a bunch of questions about why they're doing what they're doing, they get pretty frustrated. But every now and then, it's really useful. And, um, you know, that's that's what that's what led to the creation of better therapeutics this this realization that we're you know, the way we as americans are, are our lifestyles, the way we're choosing to eat and exercise and so forth is costing us quality of life, length of life, huge cost of health care, loss of productivity, and that there's a better way and and it also led to you know to indigo uh was, was was thinking about food and healthcare, and uh, and really just sort of the more I got into it, the more I, I thought, what are, what are we doing to ourselves? You know, we're in the quest to feed everybody. Um, you know, we're not we're not doing things that are best for the consumer. We're not doing things that are best for the environment, and farmers aren't making any money. So so we've got to there must be a better way,
0: and let's see if we can figure out what it is. Yeah, I agree with you. I was just doing a – I was writing up a little deal on Lyft for our report today, and they were – they came up – I always thought Uber came up with all these ideas on the ride-sharing part of things, but it turned Mm -hmm. out Lyft was on the forefront of all of it, and Uber was just strategically waiting for them to announce it, and then they'd announce it to the public before Mm then. So that's kind of how they got started. But I kind of want to learn about – how you've raised all this money. Like I said in the intro, you've raised over $1.2 billion throughout your career. Indigo alone has raised over $650 million. Is there some type of trick behind this? We work with uh, a lot of venture capitalists and startups. Um, I'm sure they would like to hear this, or is it just simply having a good idea? Well, it's, it's –
1: it, from my
0: perspective,
1: it's just a process, um, it's not It's not a black box, and there are no tricks um, You have to start with with a good idea and a big opportunity um, and then you have to be able to clearly lay out how you can take advantage of that opportunity you, you need to be clear with investors about what your risks are and how you intend to mitigate those risks and then you go talk to a whole bunch of people um you know, I I calculated at one point in my career that I, I had to talk to 50-something people for every investor I got to say yes. And my, my ratio is a little better now, but uh, but a lot of it is just intuitiveness, you know? you got to be clear in what you're doing, believe in what you're doing, don't worry about the no's, and keep going until you find somebody says yes.
0: Yeah, uh, moving on with that, like you said... For every 50, you got one yes. I mean, so that's a lot of failure. Um, another question I wanted to ask you is, what were some of your biggest failures along your journey and what lessons did you learn from them to make you successful as you are today? Well, we
1: talked about Timdex a little bit and, and my my belief that our, our biggest problem there was we had the right strategy, but I didn't spend enough time on execution. And so, you know, today at, at indigo and our other companies you know we spend getting a project management process in place having good owners being clear about who's going to do what is is a big part of how we run day to day um a second one is you've got to have your investors in board aligned with what you're trying to do um i spent a lot of time on that at indigo in the beginning i um uh, yeah, you know, we we started out as a as a yeah, our core our core science is microbiology, and uh, as I was talking to the early founders and investors, I said, you know, if 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 you want to build a microbiology company in agriculture, there's there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not your guy. If you want to use microbiology as a cornerstone on which to build a company that can change agriculture, now I think that's really interesting and. And, and we obviously ultimately agreed to it, but that agreement is critical. Um, it's, you know there's, there's lots of ways to be successful, but you've got to make sure that your board and investors are aligned on what that success looks like.
0: Yeah, I agree. So tell me, along your journey, learning all these failures and whatnot, what was the one thing that really set you apart from everyone else in the crowd to put you in this position, Indigo?
1: Um, I don't know.
0: I, uh,
1: I've, I've been asked that question before and I've never had a clear answer. Um, but, but I do think that if there's, if there's one quality that sort of predicts success in life, it is resilience. You know, the, the ability to, uh, with, undergo hardship or resistance, and uh, and sort of never waver in what you're trying to do. You just keep going and figure it out.
0: Maybe this will help answer that question we just asked, because that is a tough question. But is there a philosophy by which you live by?
1: Uh, not explicitly, but, but with regard to business, um, I would say that I realized fairly early on that, I was going to work hard no matter what I was doing. That that was just sort of my personality. And that if you're gonna if you're gonna work hard, you might as well be working on something that's large and meaningful. You know, small small businesses are just as hard as big businesses. So why don't you you know see if you can find a a big problem to solve and go do
0: that. So what's the biggest misconception about David Berry? <laughs> i don't know uh
1: i i haven't spent a ton of time worrying about what the conceptions of me are
0: <laughs> keep your head down and just keep pedaling, huh <laughs> i guess keep so. your blinders on <laughs> my dad says keep your blinders on don't worry about them yeah well that
1: i i mean i do think that's important like part of part of what gives you resilience is not caring too much about what other people are saying and, uh, yeah, that's worked for me anyway.
0: All right, before we jump into a little bit about just learning about you, I would love for you to tell me the best piece of advice you have for a young entrepreneur like myself who's trying to get their own business going.
1: Ooh. Um, give me a moment here. I I would say this. I um you know the the best outcome of starting something is that you have a success. But the the second best outcome is that you have a rapid failure. The 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 only really bad outcome is that you waste your time. You know that you you get involved in something that's never really a success and never really a failure and you're not really learning anything. So, as long as you're working on something worthwhile and you're learning fast, you know, you're probably spending your time wisely. And if you find yourself in that, you know, that intermediate ground where you you haven't won, you haven't lost and you're doing the same thing day after day and year after year, then you know, that's the only real failure.
0: That's some good advice. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about you, though. I like to talk a little bit about who's on my podcast so my listeners can get to know who they are as a person. I've been told you're a pretty good athlete. Are you still playing any sports right now?
1: Uh, I I don't play them at the same level that I used to. <laughs> so I'm, um, you know, if I if I could... My my hobby of choice, if I could go do any sport I wanted to, I would be surfing. Um, I live in Memphis, so there's not a lot of opportunities for that right here. But at least once or twice a year, I go somewhere where there are good waves and I surf. Uh, most recently, I was in Costa Rica over Christmas. Um, and then I've spent a lot of time doing endurance sports. I've, I've done... Um, three Ironman triathlons, uh, including the Ironman World Championships in Hawaii. And uh, I still do – I still spend a fair amount of time swimming, biking, and running, but but not to the same level that I used to.
0: Yeah, the first time I met you was at the conference, and right behind you was James Lawrence, the guy who ran 50 Ironmans, 50 days, 50 states. What do you think about that? I – I can't even imagine it. I
1: It took me three months to recover from an Ironman. I don't know how you would do that in
0: uh, one a day. Yeah, my dad's just been on a kick ever since he's came. and He's like, man, I do not want to get up and work out today. And he's like, what am I talking about? This guy's about to run his 38th Ironman. And he's like, this is unreal. Exactly. Yeah. But, um one thing I wanted to ask you about Ironmans, because I knew you ran one. Uh, what's the mentally hardest part about competing in them? The the thing, well,
1: the single hardest moment is when you've you've already swam 2.4 miles, and then you got on your bike and you rode 112 miles, and you get off and you know that you still have a marathon to run. <laughs> That's that's a hard moment for everybody i think um <laughs> but but truthfully the hardest part of doing an iron man is the is the preparation to do an iron man you know you've got to you got to maintain the motivation to work out at some somewhere around 20 hours a week which works out to be you know 10 to 12 workouts a week for a long time
0: to get ready for it what motivated you to do one i've been I be, I keep telling myself I'm going to do one. I do a lot of CrossFit training now at a local gym, mm-hmm. but I just can't find the time. I'm like, I don't even know when I'd have time to train for this. But what motivated you to do one in the first place?
1: Well, health, really. Uh, you know, coming back to my dad, he had his first heart attack in his
0: mid-40s and,
1: and you know, had multiple open-heart surgeries and, and ultimately died of a heart attack in 2007. And so it was, you know, health was was always on my mind. And for me, through mo- through much of my early life, that meant exercise. And um, I just I sort of got into endurance sports for health reasons. And then, you know, if you're kind of type A and kind of competitive, and I've been accused of both of those things, then it's a little bit addictive.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I uh, I tend to get addicted to things. Sometimes I did a squat challenge one of my buddies introduced me to, and it was like a 30-day squat challenge. Got a squat like every day, 30 days straight, and it's kind of no joke. It was a bodybuilder's workout. And I ended up doing like 74 days straight of squats. It was kind of insane, <laughs> but like I was two weeks in, and I promise you, I could not walk down a flight of stairs it was brutal just (laughs) walking around campus I was like what am I doing but kind of just got addicted to it you know the feeling a little bit a little bit uh let's talk a little bit about travel what's some of your favorite places you've been to our listeners might find unique or interesting well um
1: that's a good question so From an exotic perspective, I I mentioned Costa Rica earlier. Um, uh, My wife and I got married in a little town called Santa Teresa on the western coast of Costa Rica, and, um, you know, it's fantastic. It's this little town in the jungle with dirt roads and um, right on the beach, and it's good food and lots of animals, and it's sort of our, our adopted hometown in a way, so that's one of my favorite spots but um you know i also i own a place in the ozark mountains in arkansas and uh that's another you know that's another one of my favorite spots it just you know it's a, it's a i don't know if people haven't been there in the
0: spring or fall there's no place more beautiful on earth yeah i agree riding motorcycles and Stuff like that through Arkansas is always fun for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, what's what's still on the bucket list for you?
1: Um, I've never been to I've never been to Australia, so that's probably next on my list, and I might get to that in 2019. Yeah, that'll
0: be fun. One of my buddies just got engaged over in Sydney, so I was like, that's pretty cool. So let's uh let's talk about a little bit what you're doing now though as the president, CEO and director of Indigo. Could you tell me a little bit about the company and um Allie just told me about your new launch of Indigo Transport. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that as well. Sure. Well, so
1: um yeah, I'll give background first and then talk about transport. Um Perfect. So so when describing the company, we usually start with mission. So Indigo's mission mm-hmm. is harnessing nature to help farmers sustainably feed the planet. And, and specifically, we think of three things there. Improving farm profitability, because unless we do that, you know, none of the rest of this really matters. We have to make farming an economically attractive profession. Um, b is improving environmental sustainability um, and the and the third is improving agronomic practices consistent with consumer health, producing you know more nutrient rich uh, crops and so we do that yeah you know, we we try to do all three of those things with uh, using microbiology and data sciences so specifically uh we study and turn into products, microbes that can help improve yields, re- reduce fertilizer use, and help replace chemical insecticides and fungicides. And then we use data sciences to help bring all that to market. So we have uh, agronomy services that help, help farmers make those changes as they're incorporating microbiology. Uh, we've got Indigo Marketplace, which helps farmers get more for their grain and find buyers who are interested in higher quality, more sustainably grown stuff. And we've recently announced Indigo Transport, which uh, which basically helps farmers and buyers
0: source trucking for, uh, for agricultural-related products. How does the uh, transport work? Are you guys working with elevators and whatnot? Are you guys going grower to end user, what's the uh, what's the plan on that deal?
1: Yeah, both. So so we're effectively a marketplace. Uh we don't own any trucks. Uh our goal is to connect people who with who, who own trucks and drivers to the people who need shipments in a more efficient way. And you know and specifically we think there's there's two important things we could do there. One is provide more efficient backhauls. So you know, the cost of truck transportation goes way down if you've got a shipment, if your truck's full going both ways. And uh, this is essentially a data sciences problem. If you've got enough information about everybody who needs to haul stuff, you can use a computer to figure it to match the best routes and give truckers, you know, a, a haul going one way and then a haul coming back or a triangle route so that ultimately they get back and, and the truck's full the whole way. So that's part of it. The other part is it's helping bring, you know, underutilized farm assets, farm trucks into the market. So, you know, many farmers today own trucks. Most of them choose not to use them for anything other than their own use just because it's too big of a pain to do so. And our goal is to to lower that
0: pain so, so farmers can make more money from the assets they already own. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, my dad. Always talks about fragmentation, he always says mm-hmm. where there's fragmentation there's always opportunity. What are some mm-hmm. more big and upcoming opportunities in the ag space you're saying
1: well one thing i'm I'm spending a lot of time thinking about right now is uh, is carbon and greenhouse gases so um, the average Cultivated soil has about between zero point five and one percent carbon in it the The average virgin soil, so prairie or forest has for sort three of to seven percent carbon and and there's no fundamental reason for that difference like we we know the practices and changes required to get agricultural soil back to the three to seven percent. If we did so, it would be the largest possible impact we could have on reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. In fact, if you took every cultivated acre on Earth and got it back to the 3 to 7%, it would soak up all the additional carbon we put in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. Right? It's, it's an enormous impact. It's the single most positive, hopeful thing I know about with regard to climate change. And so... Uh, we're spending a lot of time thinking about how to get the incentives right, how to get farmers paid for changing those practices, um, you know, how how to make all that happen as fast as possible. So it's still a work in progress. Yeah, I'm going to try not to pre-announce anything here. <laughs>
0: That'll be good. I like to take <laughs> that on a little bit, maybe flip that out. Um let's talk about Indigo's competitive advantage. How do you keep it? I mean right now Indigo's basically the Michael Jordan of Agriculture. And he always said it's easier to get to the top than stay at the top. So what are you guys doing on your front to keep a competitive advantage? Yeah,
1: that's a that's a high bar. I don't know if I can i I don't know if we can be the Michael Jordan of, of Agriculture. That's a good aspiration though. Um <laughs> i think I think this this is true of indigo, and i would I would argue that it's going to be true of businesses going forward period. The key to success is to innovate faster than the competition you know this it used to be it used to be different than this right? you know companies could could build a brand and and be able to sort of coast on that brand for decades. But now the pace of technical innovation is so fast that, you know, if, if you don't innovate, you die. And and perhaps the the companies that are strongest and most sustainable will be the ones who are best at, you know, looking ahead and figuring out how those changes create opportunities and threats and are able to adjust to them. So, so that's what we talk about in Indigo all the time. It's, it's running lots of experiments, you know, trying to to look at what's happening, have a hypothesis about what we think that means, and then try stuff. And if it works, we do more of it. If it doesn't work, we stop. We try not to beat ourselves up too much when we try something that doesn't work because
0: we know as long as we're learning something, we're making progress. Makes sense. Another question I had about indigo is what are three qualities you look for, for- when recruiting or bringing on a new member to your executive team, um, so you you
1: specifically said executive team there, and so I'll answer yeah. that one. But you know, it's it's actually different depending on the level and the role. You know, those those qualities could change. At, at the executive team level, um, we have tried to we've tried to hire ahead of our needs, so we have a you know, we have a remarkable group of people. Our our chief supply chain officer had the same role at Caterpillar. Um, our chief financial officer had that was the CFO at Shire Pharmaceuticals, which is a 60 billion dollar publicly traded company. Uh, our our you know our chief attorney had the same role at EMC, which Dell bought for 50 something billion dollars. Like these are very experienced, very senior executives. And in some ways, when we hired them, people said, well, you know, aren't you kind of top heavy? Like, what do you need all those people for in an organization of, a, of just a few hundred? But the answer is we're trying to hire the people that can manage the company we want to be five years from now. And um, and so I guess that's the, the first answer. We, we look for people who can scale, who can both do the job, that we have today and do the job five years from now. Um, The the second one's IQ. I mean, it's just, you just gotta be smart. Like, it's really hard to to do what I described earlier of being able to iterate and run experiments and see what's coming unless, unless you're pretty intelligent. And then three, I think is, I don't know whether to call it team orientation or humility we don't really we don't really have stars we're it's a team of people that we work together to do it. Um, we're a complex business. nobody knows enough to be able to do it on their own so so you've got to be able you've got to be excited about working in the
0: team. yeah, you mentioned uh you structure your team for how you want to be in the next three to five years. Where do you see indigo being in the next three to five years? Well,
1: I I won't I won't give numbers for that answer but you know what what we're trying to do is to fundamentally change agriculture to uh to ina- to give farmers the tools and information they need to grow things with greater yields more sustainably and more healthfully and to get farmers paid for doing that and so if we're successful five years from now, we'll start to have a, yeah, you know, we'll start to see agriculture fundamentally change in, in moving from what today is really a commodity agriculture to agriculture that's been decommoditized and farmers are getting paid for producing specialty
0: uh, products. Good deal. One, one last right. question I wanted to ask you. Um, I was doing a lot of research on you and I noticed you Pretty much throughout your whole career, you've worked in the medical industry, pharmaceutical industry, all that, in that kind of same sector. But I just wanted to know why you recently made the switch to agriculture. Well,
1: in, in 2014, when I, when I left uh, my previous company, Anacor Pharmaceuticals, I, just, I took some time off and sort of stepped back and said, all right, you know, I've kinda, I kind of have a blank slate here. I can do anything I want. What do I want that to be? And uh, and I concluded that that food and agriculture are some of the most important issues facing us as a planet and as a society. You know, namely, how do we feed a growing population? How can we do it without consuming all of our resources? How we do it in a way that's healthier for those of us who eat that food, and how do we do it in a way that supports farmers being more profitable? And uh, I just I decided to focus the next part of my career on trying to address those problems.
0: Good deal. Yeah, I kind of was like that as well. I was going to go off to law school and got into University of Kansas City, Missouri, right here where I'm from, and I was going to go do that and be a lawyer, but kind of sat down with my dad and changed my mindset somewhat, and I, I agree with you. I think uh, there's a problem, and I think there's a lot we could do for years to come for the whole world. I like to end with a little fun and I'm sure you'll like this question, but finish this sentence for me. David Perry is
1: constantly trying to be better.
0: I like that. Can you expand a little more?
1: Uh, you know, we're we're all we're all we all have talents and flaws and, uh, you know, maybe me more than most on the flawed side. And, you know, if we we want to have, at least as I think about it, if I want to have the sort of – I'm going to be able to have the sort of impact that I want to have, then I need to work on my flaws. And so I'm I'm constantly
0: trying to be better. This runs into my last question before we wrap things up. I would love for you to tell our listeners – One piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on David I,
1: I think I would come back to my dad's lesson, which is just because people have been doing it that way doesn't mean that it needs to be done that way going forward. So constantly be asking why. Um you know, it, is, is there a better way, either for yourself as a person, or you know, does it create an opportunity just to, uh, to, to create a company around it? Is it a business opportunity?
0: Is that that constantly be asking why? Awesome. Yeah, that's some good advice for anybody, especially entrepreneurs out there in the world. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. it for our farm take session today. I appreciate you being on the podcast with me. David, are you guys going to be out at Davos on the Delta this year? Yeah,
1: we'll be there. You know, uh, that's located here in Memphis where where our U.S. commercial headquarters are, so we, uh, we want to support
0: that, and we'll be here for sure. Perfect. Well, I'm sure I'll see you out there, and I'm sure we'll stay in touch in the future. I appreciate you.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed talking to you, Jordan.
0: Thank you. Yep, have a good day. I'll see you. Okay. Thanks Jordan.